Uh, Mark 12, 35 through 37. Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Good morning. How are you guys? It's good to see you. And uh, our stream's actually not working right now, but when we post this later, it's good to be with you guys at home also. Um, all right, we are, we are going to continue on with Mark. Mark chapter 12, we are getting close to closing out this book. Excited to get into this last stretch here and uh, looking forward to we're going to we're going to go into a teaching series through the apostles creed which is going to be really fun we're going to take it line by line that's going to be a fun one so our passage today we're going to jump in here um mark is this gospel that was written for most likely written for Gentile believers. This is, this is a gospel written for us, for disciples, as a roadmap on how to follow Jesus. This morning's passage continues uh, with these interactions that Jesus is having, these questionings that Jesus is having um, from the religious, political, and social leaders in Jerusalem. First it was, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, then it was the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and then the scribes, and he's just getting sort of this barrage of questions. And last week, you remember this, uh, as Brent was, was teaching, the, uh, the, la- the end of last week's verse, everybody's silenced. There's nothing they can say anymore. This morning, this passage is sort of, this passage here in Mark is sort of Jesus' last words to the religious elite, the religious leaders of his days. It's a summing up, so to speak, of all that's just happened since he's arrived in Jerusalem. In fact, Even when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin on trial in a few chapters, all he's going to say is he's going to repeat what he quotes here. He's going to repeat Psalms 110, and he's going to add a little bit of Daniel 7 in there. The question in our passage today forms the climax, the conclusion of these six questioning stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. And like I said, in reality, the debate at this point is over. No one dared, this is what the verse, preceding verse says, no one dared to question him any longer. He had won the debate, so to speak. So Jesus, instead of, uh, instead here, Jesus goes on the offensive 
so to speak, and he asks his own question. He poses his own question now. Like there's this six series of questions posed at Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to catch him, trying to make him uh, trip up on his words. And now Jesus goes sort of on the offensive with his own question. His question is about the identity of the Messiah. Apparently, after he silenced the religious leaders, he just continues teaching in the temple precincts. And then with great crowds listening in, he asks the question. This question that he asks is very Jesus-like, right? You guys familiar reading through the Gospels and like, Jesus, why, why riddles? Why? This is very riddle-like. To us, this question seems kind of odd, like it's a play on words or something. Uh, but this became, this interaction, these three verses, this psalm that Jesus quotes, becomes sort of the, the like pillar for the development of the Christology of the New Testament. The apostles, this is the most quoted psalm. Psalm 110, the psalm that Jesus quotes here, is the most quoted psalm in the rest of the New Testament. Essentially, the question is this. Whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? Really, this is the question that's been hovering over this gospel this whole time. Remember, we've asked this over and over and over. Who is Jesus? Mark, is, is, he's been dancing around this question this entire time. Who is Jesus? It's been said, some commentators say about this passage, that Jesus comes closer to revealing his identity here than he does anywhere else in the gospel. The religious leaders believed that the Messiah was to be a human empowered by God to save the Jews from their political oppression. The psalm here that Jesus quotes, Psalm 110, it's the most quoted, like I said, uh, psalm of the New Testament. Let's look at this a little bit closer. So, verse 35 here in chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I will put your enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord, so how is he his son? N.T. Wright about this passage says this. This passage is therefore pointing forward towards something which again has been bubbling under the surface ever since Jesus arrived to Jerusalem and will come to its head when Jesus confronts Caiaphas in chapter 14. Jesus is claiming and has been this whole time that he has authority over the temple. He's been claiming indeed that he has the He has the right to declare God's judgment on the temple, not simply as a prophet, but as a king. Not simply as a king, but as the true priest. Not simply as the priest king, but as the living embodiment of God's, 
of Israel's God. This is complex and perhaps difficult to grasp all at once, but these are the themes that make sense of this whole section that we've just gone through. This was a very calculated question for Jesus. This, like, he knew what he was doing in asking this question. The intent here, I believe, was to cause the religious leaders, and indeed us as the readers, as, you, as we're reading this, to thoughtfully reflect, to pause and to think about the nature of the Messiah's lordship. I believe this question is a form of grace, actually, for the religious leaders. Jesus wanted them to stop and think carefully about what they believe. The scribes and the religious leaders would be forced to reckon with this question. There could be no contradiction in their interpretation of Scripture. So they had to deal with this. Is Jesus pointing out a contradiction? Does, did David mess up when he wrote this? What's going on? So a couple things. Just Psalm 110. Jesus and was normal assume, obviously, this is a Psalm of David. And they assume that this is messianic, as if this is about the coming Messiah. Just for, for clarity, let's read this psalm. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Psalm 110. Seven verses. Actually, I have the CSB up, but it's similar to the ESV. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I will make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. And the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of your anger. He will judge the nations heaping up corpse, corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink in the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's a pretty intense psalm. We read a couple weeks ago when the elders were all up here, we read Psalm 2. Most people think Psalm 110 is sort of an elevation of Psalm 2, sort of an interpretation of that. This is the messianic hope. This is what they were looking for, this, this king that would come and would, would utterly destroy and crush his enemies. The beginning here, verse 1 of Psalm 110 David says, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is sort of the, this is the question that Jesus poses. What does he mean by that? The Hebrew there would be the Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's Adonai. The two, two different words. And Jesus is saying that is 
God says to the Messiah, David's Lord. So the riddle here that Jesus poses is that how can the Messiah be both David's son, which was the common understanding, and also David's Lord? The implication is that the son is normally underneath the father and would never call him Lord. Fathers, are you calling your your son (laughs) your master? It's not typical, right? It would be extremely atypical for them. Questions sort of around messiahship in general, Jesus' messiahship in particular, have been all around, obviously, this gospel most of the time. Specifically since chapter 8, Peter's confession. Peter said, remember Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some people say one of the prophets or this or that. And Peter jumps up, speaks for all of them and says, but you, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So since then, this idea of messiahship has been all around. Now Jesus directly addresses it. Who exactly will this Messiah be? What can we say about him? What can we know about this Messiah? What Jesus has done in the temple, remember the clearing of the temple, confronting the religious leaders, it begs this question, who does Jesus think he is? Why does he have authority to do this? Who does Jesus think he is? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who has authority over that temple. Several of these previous discussions, the questioning about John the Baptist, the parable about the wicked tenants, the questions about taxes to Caesar, they all relate. They're all pointing to this issue of Messiahship. Who is Jesus? And it, on the surface, looks like Jesus is challenging sort of this normal Jewish assumption, assumption that, that the Messiah was to be the son of David. It, almost, it looks like Jesus is challenging that. Based on a very long scriptural tradition, Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, over and over and over, there's this belief that the Messiah was to be the son of David. He would be the great coming king that would be born of the family of David. The official position of the religious leaders was this. And Jesus says, you're correct. They're correct, but only partially. Their views needed to be supplemented because they do not fully comprehend God's plan for the Messiah. They had a limited picture of what God was intending to do as the Messiah. So they're correct, but only partially. Their views needed to be amended. Even in the Gospel of Mark, we saw back with Bartimaeus, remember Bartimaeus called out, what did he call out? Is anybody? Son of David, have mercy on me. 
son of David. When Jesus entered the city, the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, the crowd said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, the coming of the kingdom of our father, David. This also recalls the tenant in the parables who recognized the son as the heir, and it points forward towards the crucial question raised by Jesus' trial in chapter 14 that we're going to look at when Jesus is asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I believe Jesus and Mark, they're not denying that Jesus was the Son of David. In fact, the other synoptic gospels go through great lengths to prove that both sides, from Mary and Joseph, Jesus is in fact a Son of David. He is of that lineage. What we find here is a challenge that the idea will be simply or just a son of David. He will be David's Lord as well as his son. It's as if Jesus is raising the corner, so to speak, on the curtain that hides the biggest secret of all. Not only is he the Messiah coming with royal authority to Jerusalem and the temple, not only is he going to die and bring about the true kingdom, though his disciples don't fully understand that at this point, uh, he is going to do all of this not simply as David's son, but as David's Lord, God incarnate. Mark already told us this. He, dear reader, at the beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That could be translated, the beginning of the story of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what this gospel is about. Jesus is not merely the Son of David. He's the very Son of God. One more note, just sort of on this before we look at some applications. What does this mean for us? Um, If, as I've been thinking about this this week, if the question concerning the nature of Jesus' messianic identity was all that was at the table here, the first part of Psalm 110 would have sufficed. All Jesus would have had to have quoted is, the Lord said to my Lord. Why then... the addition of Yahweh's promise to make his enemies a footstool. What's the point there? It's a little bit of a dark note. This is the most explicit to date, claiming that Jesus' enemies are God's enemies and they are destined for destruction. That, that's a little intense. That imagery of, of uh, making your enemy a footstool, the picture of that would be a captured king would be placed under the foot, his neck, under the foot of the capturing king. That's what that, that being placed under your foot as a footstool, that's that picture. Complete and total submission. All right, like, yeah, that's, a, that's an intense image. 
And that's what's being claimed here, that Jesus doesn't just quote the part about the Lord said to my Lord. He actually goes and he quotes the whole thing. Think back this whole section that we've looked at since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He entered to the crowds cheering, hailing him as the Messiah, quoting Psalm 118, expecting him to come as the Messiah like the Maccabean revolt, like Simon Maccabeus. They expected him to come with military and political power like that of David. Think of the cheers. David's killed his ten thousands. That's what they expected from this son of David. Psalm 110 is considered a further interpretation or a heightening of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2 and in Psalm Psalm 110, we see that the Lord sent forth his mighty scepter from Zion, from, from Jerusalem. Ironically, with Jesus, it almost seems as if that scepter is now towards Jerusalem. He's coming and he's pronouncing judgment on the temple, judgment on the political and religious system that his people had built. It seems to me that part of Psalm 110, this part of Psalm 110, reinforces the point of the parable that we looked at a few weeks ago of the wicked tenants. Those who refused to bless Jesus from the house of the Lord and instead plotted his death will be shattered and placed under the feet of Yahweh himself. That's intense. At his baptism and the transfiguration, Mark's Jesus, this Jesus that we see in this gospel, was privately declared as the Son of God. And now, just as Psalm 110, sort of a heightening of Psalm 2, Mark's narrative seems to be pushing towards this ultimate climax. Jesus is now publicly making the religious leaders squirm a bit with their inadequacies of their doctrine and their understanding of who Jesus was. Jesus cannot merely be David's messianic son. He also is David's exalted Lord, the Son of God, who uniquely sits at God's right hand, sharing his blessing, his authority, and his righteousness. What this means will soon be revealed at the final moment of this confrontation when Jesus again, this is in, in front of Caiaphas, the religious leader's his trial, he will again appeal to this very passage. Okay, so what does this mean for us? There's three verses. They're very important theology. This is like the, the basis of our Christology. Jesus is the God-man. He's the son of David, the son of God. But what does this mean for us as disciples of Jesus right now? As disciples of Jesus, we are called to increasingly submit every part of our lives to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. Mark, as we've said, is a roadmap on how to do that. So there's something in here for us as a lesson that we can, we can glean from.
We are called to increasingly submit every part of our life to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. Not just Sunday mornings, guys. Not just when you watch the stream or listen to the podcast. Every part, your social interactions, your relationships, your work, every part, you are called as a disciple of Jesus to submit that to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. In so many ways, I think, as I, as I reflected and I thought on this passage, in so many ways, we are just like the religious leaders that Jesus is dealing with in this section. We look, they looked for, we look for the comfortable and the easy way out, and we find proof text to, to bring validity to what we think is comfortable and easy. We'll use even the scripture to make the easy way out. This morning, I want to challenge you. There are many things in what we know as cultural Christianity, many things in the ways that we have done church, church life, your discipleship, that it's possible that that's just the cultural norm that you've built up, and it's not actually from the Bible. We need to critique our cultural norms based off the Scripture, not based off of the cultural norms outside of us, not based off the political or cultural pressure around us, not based off of popular opinion, but off what the Bible says. That's what we need to critique our norms by. Kept thinking about this quote. I think Char mentioned it way at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was thinking about this this week. John Tyson said this, The real conspiracy is satanic. And its goal is to get you to focus on a global meta whatever that you can do almost nothing about and, and therefore neglect the place of prayer, the word, and sacrificial love of your neighbor. I think that's the point, you guys. Like, we have to submit every aspect of our lives to the leadership and lordship of Jesus. And if the enemy can get you to focus on anything, even good things, other than what he is calling you to do and to submit to him, then he's one. But his disciples, these things, these prayer, the word, sacrificially loving each other, you guys realize, remember, Jesus said they will know that we are Christians by our love, the way that we love one another, the way that we relate together, is how unbelievers know that the gospel is true. We have to be careful that we don't just assume that we have these things all figured out. Remember, Jesus is not less than you can imagine. He's more than it. He's high above. He's more than you can possibly fathom. And he demands more than you can possibly imagine. 
It's also possible that like the scribes, you might have, we might have the correct theological answers. You might even have the correct doctrinal statement. But if your lives and the way you relate to other people don't line up to that, you're a clanging cymbal and a resounding gong. You guys, we're, we're all on a journey. We're all on a road. This path of discipleship where we increasingly submit our lives to Jesus. Have grace with one another. Encourage each other on that road. Challenge each other to go back to the scriptures. But we don't have it figured out. None of us have this thing figured out. In reality, we all need to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus over and over and allow him to evaluate all of our preconceived cultural norms. Amen? I'm going to pray real quick. Worship team, come back up. We are going to, we'll take communion during uh, the second set of worship. So if you haven't already, go ahead and grab your communion elements and... uh, We'll take that. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the exalted Lord, David's Lord and son, the God-man. God, I pray for a fresh revelation, a fresh picture of who you are and what you've called us to be. God, I pray that we would understand, we would have a, a, a heightened awareness of who you are and what we're to be doing in light of that. Jesus, I ask that you would come and you would lead us, that you would draw us together as a community and a family, that we're on the same team and we're going after this journey of discipleship together. Help us love you well, and live in light of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.